0: Welcome to the Harvard Center for International Development's Road to GEM23 Climate and Development Podcast. My name is Charles Hua and I'm a senior at Harvard College and a CID Student Ambassador. CID's Road to GEM23 series precedes and helps launch CID's Global Empowerment Meeting or GEM, Growing in a Green World on May 10th and 11th. At CID, we work across a global network of researchers and practitioners to build, convene, and deploy talent to address the world's most pressing challenges. On our road to GEM23, we strive to elevate and learn from voices from the countries on the front lines of the climate crisis, and will feature important learnings from the leaders who will be active participants at GEM23. This week, we are joined by Cheyenne Choudhury, who is a student at Columbia University and the founder and executive director of the tech nonprofit Reach for Help coordinating disaster response efforts for over 10,000 NGOs and charitable organizations in the most remote and underserved communities worldwide. So Cheyenne, I'd love to learn more about your personal journey. What prompted you to start working in the international development space? What are some of the projects that you've had a chance to work on? And why is this work important to you?
1: Uh, I'm currently a student at Columbia and um, I've been living in New York for the last few years, but originally I actually grew up in Bangladesh. It's a country right to the right of India. And it's a country that has recently come in the news for being one of the countries that's the most hard hit by climate change. It's uh, according to the Global Climate Risk Index, it's the third most disaster prone country to climate change. It's the seventh most susceptible to climate devastation in general. And so uh, just last year, there were uh, a big cyclone that happened around the summer last year when I was actually there. So I was physically there And a lot of my family members who uh, are in Silet, uh, they were personally affected by that. So there was this massive cyclone that had ravaged or marooned about like 7 million people in parts of Silet, Rongpur and so on. And so Bangladesh is consistently hit by like cyclones, by floods, by natural disasters. And this is like on a almost yearly basis that destroys like lives and livelihoods up to like hundreds of millions of dollars every single year. So I think, uh, just having grown up in that environment, having seen a lot of those events taking place in my home country, it, it really it, it has an effect on you, as you can tell. Like It's something that is just a consistent factor. And it, it really drove me to think about, like why is this something that happens in Bangladesh and it doesn't happen in other parts of the world as frequently, as severely? And now with climate change becoming more and more severe, these crises just keep ramping up in severity and frequency. So it just like was a growing up in Bangladesh, seeing a lot of these climate disasters happen like right in front of me uh, was something that I think really challenged me to do something about it. And I, I so you mentioned the UN part. I, I did right after high school. So I did high school in, in New York. I had moved to New York when I was around like 10, uh, 10 or 11, and uh, did a little bit of middle school, then high school. And then, actually, right after high school, I got the opportunity to work with the U.N. So I got a chance to go back to Bangladesh to actually do something for my home country. because I've been wanting to do that, anywho, and the U.N. just seemed like a very good opportunity to do that. Uh, so it, that, that first project wasn't actually climate related. That, that was just me trying to help out in any capacity I could. I was just uh, interested in helping out in whatever way I could. So. I had the opportunity to work with the UN, the UNHCR, the High Commissioner for Refugees, and UNDP, the Development Program, on a joint project to help refugees essentially become sustainable. So, a large part of I'm not going to get into too many details now, but a large part of what we were doing there was helping refugees, just like understanding their biggest needs when it comes to financial security and economic sustainability, and just like mobility in that sense, socioeconomic mobility and then being able to get them skills development resources, ability to like earn an income, jobs, like international jobs and so on. So a lot of it was like understanding their needs on the ground and then connecting them with different resources across the world. In many cases, uh, like we got them uh, shipments and like a lot of what the refugees ended up like creating uh, and selling were not actually in Bangladesh. In fact, it couldn't have been in Bangladesh because A lot of geopolitics associated with that. But uh, we did like international commerce, essentially, international e commerce, so to speak. And uh, we worked with like people in Thailand and Indonesia and in Southeast Asia and China and so on to help refugees essentially become more self sustainable. So that was my first sort of foray into uh, not necessarily climate space, the climate space, but international development, so to speak. Like trying to understand what are some of the biggest challenges faced by these remote and underserved communities and how we can help best help them get back up on their feet because it's, 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 it's a very like jarring experience as you can imagine. Like I come from a pretty like middle-class background. So I'm not, uh, I grew up in Bangladesh, but I never really grew up in any position that was, was even remotely similar to what happened in the camps What many of the kids there I grew up seeing. Yeah. It, it's still very, very, uh, heartbreaking to just even think about like the people that I met there and and, uh, uh, just the stories that I heard from kids like kids that were younger than me like eight years old that literally saw their parents slaughtered in front of their eyes and uh, houses burned down and so it's something that really has an effect on you it's something that really really like sets your resets your perspective in life about like what i want to do uh, what i should be spending my time on and it really reoriented myself into thinking about okay i should try to look at some of these like global like macro level problems and try and see how i can utilize my skills having having had a lot of opportunities in the past to lo- learn and grow from and utilizing those skills that i developed from those opportunities in a positive way
0: That's very powerful hearing just your personal story and how your upbringing has impacted so much of how you see the world and how you frame the questions you ask. You've identified many pertinent global challenges, talking about things ranging from climate change to economic self-sufficiency to refugee crises to international development. How did you go about thinking about which problems you wanted to tackle? And why did you feel like Reach for Help, the organization that you created, was the right solution to pursue?
1: So my background is is very much so in like tech and CS, like also data-driven stuff. So a lot of what I had seen in just working in the UN system, I identified like a key problem that that I saw that was further exacerbated during the pandemic, which is why we started Reach for help in the first place, was kind of going back to the idea of like people in need, like refugees and, and people in need in general, like across the world. There's not too much understanding or access to local help or like ways that they can get some sort of help from either local charitable groups, churches, student groups, volunteer groups. And so during COVID, a big thing that happened were like, suddenly everybody's in lockdown, suddenly everybody's stuck at home. Uh, If you're an elderly person, if you're immunocompromised, if you're poor, if you don't really uh, have an ability or means to put food on the table anymore. Now you're scared. I mean you're, you're terrified because now you don't know who you can reach out to for or uh, who who actually exists in your neighborhood that's able to help you so what we set out to do where we, we were talking to a lot of people and and one of these people happened to be my own mom because i i uh i was in Bangladesh at the time when i started reach for up i was working for uh, the un and then the government in Bangladesh, and uh a big challenge for my mom even here was you know she's stuck at home how is she going to get food how is she going to go outside without catching covid without putting her at risk because she's she's also uh, a high risk individual so it was it was just really terrifying for lack of a better word because it was i we did not want to take any chances with with her so like a uh, big thing that we were looking at was how can we reach how can we connect people in need to pre-existing organizations and pre-existing networks that had existed already of volunteers of individual people that we're already helping disseminate food and uh, give it to people that were in need. So that was like the core mission, connecting people in need to people who can help. And then from there, like that, that that was a key problem that I noticed in working in the UN that there were not a big framework to do that. And uh, from like started in COVID, uh, then we kind of just started doing that. Like we started a very small project, like a very small pilot where we, did exactly that. We created like an app that would match individual people that said, Hey, I need food on like this regular basis. And uh, somebody like a student or or any kind of like church group would say like, okay, we're, we we operate in this neighborhood. We can deliver that or provide that to you. So we just did that a very small pilot, like 6,000 users uh, in the first few months. And then saw that that, that was actually something that people really liked. And we sort of expanded out. So from that initial six thousand, we six thousand people. Then we started to work more with like organizations. So from small NGOs that work in like you know, local communities to even large NGOs. Like we with BRAC uh, during the floods actually in Bangladesh to go to go back to that. Actually, speaking of Bangladesh, because I'm kind of also representing Bangladesh in my country here, a big case study of what we had actually done after COVID. Because reach started during COVID, we were helping out with a lot of the getting food and other kinds of resources, medical resources uh, in India and so on. But respect to climate change, since this is kind of focused on that, uh, a large part of what we did during climate change and helping with the disaster response was uh, in Pakistan and Bangladesh when the floods happened uh, last summer and last fall. So we'd work with a couple of big NGOs, BRAC, as I mentioned, the largest NGO in the world, uh, even smaller NGOs like Kandari and Kulna and so on. So. We basically connected a lot of these different dots. A lot of what we do is very data-driven, so trying to understand you know, who needs help and who can help, and then connecting all the dots between like, okay, uh, there's 100 people here in this remote village that need uh, access to dry, uh, dry food and clean water. So how can we get the resources that are in this city over to that village? Uh, we have the money. We can buy stuff, but uh, we don't have any people to drive things to that remote village. So then we go and coordinate with, okay, there's a small NGO that works in that village. How can we get them some money and resources, maybe a truck or so, so that they can take stuff from the city and then drive it back over to their village. So kind of coordinating a lot of these different dots, just like a lot of logistics, a lot of coordination to get, to first of all, understand the needs. So kind of using that data-driven thing and then coordinating how we can get The uh, demand get the I mean sorry get the supplies over to that need after having assessed it. So just just to give you like some stats uh, in Bangladesh and Pakistan we were able to reach like fifty eight thousand almost like sixty thousand households in some of the most remote parts of these countries. So in Pakistan we uh, worked a lot in like the Sindh province outside the outskirts of like Sukkur, Hala, and parts of Balochistan that were far away from like the main cities that were hit the hardest, but also like in many cases, I think a lot, of, a lot of times when you see a lot of this disaster response, whether it's here in the U.S. or whether it's in Pakistan or whether it's in Bangladesh, many times you will, you'll notice kind of patterns in which a lot of times like, some of the most marginalized and rural communities in the world that are already uh, very vulnerable themselves, they're consistently left out. During disaster responses, and so when another disaster hits, and you continue to leave them out, you're further exacerbating that divide. You're further exacerbating a lot of those inequalities and inequities, and so it's really important, I think, uh, when we're talking about data. I, I, I'll probably speak more to like the role of data and technology in how we can do disaster response, how we can make our climate change measures and, and uh, responses more effective and more equitable, but. We have to be very mindful about how we're using a lot of that data and and where our gaps are, where are our gaps and inefficiencies in where we don't have data. So in remote villages, we're generally like there's not as many people, but there's still people there. There's still people that need help and need some sort of support. And it's important that we recognize that and make good on using that data, on, on collecting data, but also using that data to make sure we don't leave anyone behind. Yeah, Just just a lot of disaster response stuff in, in the context of climate change and floods.
0: Can you talk about how climate change has impacted some of the communities that you've worked with, as well as how it's impacted the work that you do and the approach that you bring to your work?
1: Yeah, yeah. so climate change was actually, ironically, not something that I had really set my eyes on when we started Reach for All because it started during the pandemic. So it was like very much so... The idea was how can we help during any kind of crisis? So we did stuff during the pandemic. And then shortly after, there was uh, uh, the earthquake that happened in Mexico, in Oaxaca. So we did some work there. uh, And then uh, in California, we worked with a lot of different organizations there. House of Good Deeds was one of them on uh, how we can basically get shelter to a lot of the people who were displaced by the wildfires. So we just kind of just kept doing stuff in different disaster context so from wildfires to floods to droughts to pandemics to uh different things and it never really occurred to us that like climate was this particular one that we would be focusing on or we would be like looking at very strictly um up until i think i think the last year actually when i got a lot more involved in climate change it was always something that Was in the back of my mind, like having grown up in Bangladesh, having seen a lot of those effects, that was something that I always wanted to tackle and get to. But it wasn't up until very recently where I started seeing like, wow, okay, climate, like more of the crises that we were starting to respond to happen to be more climate related. So like from wildfires to droughts, like everything I was saying, uh, the floods in Bangladesh, I think that was also like a bit of an inflection point for me It was like, wow, my home is getting completely ravaged by this massive disaster. Maybe I should probably focus on not only just like doing a lot of the disaster response stuff like mitigation after the disaster is happening, but also trying to see how we can prevent it in the first place. So climate has been like a really big, big, like problem to tackle in in recent months, just because the sheer number of climate disasters that have been happening recently. Uh, right now in Arkansas, there's like another storm that's happening. That's like another massive. Yeah. Like there's a lot of people that have been displaced and a lot of people that have been affected by that. So like every few months you just hear like another super storm or another hurricane, like just a few years ago. So it's like, it just consistently keeps happening. And it's something that is really hard to not notice, I suppose. And now like I've, I'm kind of, a lot more aware of that problem and a lot more cognizant of how I should start to solve it. Uh, To answer like a probably a bit more specifics as to like how climate disasters themselves have been uh, or how we've been kind of addressing them. So a lot of the times going back to Pakistan, I suppose, uh, when we do a lot of disaster response, and this is something that UN OTA, the Office of the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, uh, various like UNHCR, UN. world food program like various un agencies they they have to tackle these problems themselves as well is how do you how do you respond to a crisis when that crisis has destroyed a lot of the underlying infrastructure that you rely on to do that response in the first place so when you have when you have roads completely destroyed or flooded when you have no cell service anymore that you would have used to get data to understand like where people need help so that's a big challenge and that is actually one thing that we've been like trying to understand like what other avenues can we take to mitigate those challenges, to tackle those because uh, when roads are flooded, then we have to figure out an alternative way to get food or get resources to the people in those flooded areas. So, and we have to like make makeshift boats or, uh, or like figure out like how we can distribute resources on like uh, paddle boats, like paddle, like rafts, essentially like moving stuff from rafts. It's very, it's very fascinating to see just how uh, in these like really resource challenge contexts, just the, the level of innovation that people can come up with. It's like almost primitive innovation, so to speak. It's not like some big tech. It's not some like big data innovation. It's not like drones or anything like that. It's literally just using the, the most bare bones necessities of what people have, what people have access to and innovating on that so that we can get stuff done so we can get stuff to people in need and so that was a big challenge and and a good way to tackle that was actually working a lot with like local organizations because they understand their needs they understand what how they can tackle those because they've been flooded before they've seen a lot of this stuff before so instead of us going and giving them a solution like hey uh guys let's do this they'll say like no okay you you're helping us with like some monetary stuff with some direction of assess, like where needs assessment is identifying gaps and stuff but we know how to help our own people thank you for giving us the support that you have but at the end of the day i think it's really important to also build partnerships with local communities and local organizations and then give them the agency to to do what they do best which is helping their own communities and that, that sort of bottom-up approach is something that we've been... At ReachFub, we've been really, really, really aware of and, and really like trying to champion because from the top down, you can, you can give people instructions, you can give them as much support as you want, but at the end of the day, most of the work actually happens on the ground. Most of the work happens by the people that are boots on the ground that understand the context of the situation there. And the best thing that we can do is just give them what they need and then give them the space to do what they need to do with that.
0: I think that's a really important point and definitely one that doesn't get as much attention as it should. Given your work engaging at a more grassroots level, in addition to your personal experiences and how they've impacted your important work, what are some of the things you're hearing from what communities need and what are some of the resources at the end of the day that would be really helpful to put in the hands of those communities, particularly ones at the front lines of the climate crisis?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So. I think first and foremost, like the biggest thing that we need to be doing because, like, it it very much is context specific. It's very dependent on who you're talking to. So I think the most important thing is probably just listen. Just go to these villages, go to these people and ask, like, what what do you need? Because in in Pakistan, what they might need is definitely not the same thing as what they might need in Haiti or what they might need in Mexico or uh, what they need in Cuba. So I think it's really specific i think just to generalize like what things people do need in these contexts are generally just capacity development i think there's many of these uh so capacity development and education is possibly another one because there's in many cases speaking about bangladesh actually uh, this is a project i'm currently doing with the climate reality project it's on climate change education so we won a grant from them uh, last year uh, last october Uh, on how we can help a lot of the younger generations of Bangladesh understand what climate change is and how they can tackle it in the future. Because a lot of times, like these communities that are hit, that are consistently hit over and over and over again, they don't really chalk it up to anything that's a man-made phenomenon. They think it's like an act of God or it's something that is just some kind of wrath, wrath of God, essentially. So the fact that it is a man-made phenomenon, the fact that that is something that is getting worse due to human intervention, and it's something that can potentially, like, if we have a good faith effort of, of trying to reduce emissions, of trying to roll back a lot of the damages that we've already done, technically speaking, they can get better.
0: But as of right now,
1: a lot of people don't really know that. A lot of people just think it's, like, some kind of like holy or some kind of divine intervention or something so that that's one thing that i think is is really important whereas like like giving people the tools to understand like yes this is something that can be prevented this is something that you can prepare against this is something that you can prevent in the future uh by you know different policies different implementations and this is a long like policy list of things you can do but also just like at, at a grassroots level, like these are the things that you should prepare for. This is the situation at hand and you may have another flood like this in the future. So these are these are ways that we can help you become more resilient and more prepared for any kind of crisis like that that may happen in the future, whether it's a flood, whether it's a wildfire, whether it's a drought, whether it's what, what have you that like various climate disasters are. But I think equipping people with the tools to understand what is happening, the education, and then equipping them with uh, understanding like how they can be better prepared. So uh, preparation can mean very different things, as I mentioned, like it's very context specific. So what are some ways like you can mitigate against floods? Like would it be like uh, very, in Miami, uh, uh, we got the opportunity uh, to go to Miami Beach and hear about a lot of the local city officials and understand like what kind of resiliency efforts they have. So they have stuff that's like, Ranging from very natural resiliency efforts using coral coral reefs and mangroves to stuff that's like super technologically advanced, so it's very interesting to see like the breadth of different innovations and breadth of different kind of resiliency measures that people can take. So if you go to like Bangladesh, for example, like Chittagong, like right along the coast of the of Bangladesh on the southern coast, uh, they they have much more like natural barriers. So they're building like mangroves, they're building like sediments along the, the edge of the Bay of Bengal. And so how can we help them given the stuff that they already know how to do in those contexts, how can we help them with their own resiliency efforts to prevent a lot of the worst effects of climate change? So yeah, just, just, it's very context specific. Listen to what people are doing already on the ground and figure out and and like work with them to figure out how we can support what's already going on instead of coming up with like grand new technological innovations bringing in like new stuff new technology because it's not always a good fit in many in most cases it's not a fit
0: thank you for your perspectives on that I want to close with a personal question, if I may. You've been able to have incredible and impressive impact, especially for someone of your age. And this is a difficult space to operate in. The challenges are in many ways complex and technical, and it takes a lot of resources, expertise, and frankly, connections to be able to have the positive impact that you've been able to garner. So I'm curious, how do you think about gaining credibility as a young person working in this space? How have you been able to build that? What are some of the models that you tend to look at and the guiding principles that inform your work? And, and ultimately, what do you see as your future contribution? to the space. What's next for you?
1: I think I have to say that I'm very grateful first of all because I'm here because other people have made space for me to be here. And I've had so much just mentorship and so much so many people that have like taken me under their wing and given me a lot of the skills and 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 knowledge to do this. Like I always kind of tell my friends like when they say like oh you go and like talk at all these places like how do you do this? And I always say like you know, four years ago, if you'd met me, I couldn't form a sentence to save my life. So in the last like four or five years, like I've had just such a, f- like such fortune to meet such incredible people at the UN uh, at uh, now at Columbia. Like I've, I've met some like really incredible people in that space at the climate school and so on that have given me a lot of the skills and a lot of the perspectives to be able to understand these issues and, and to be able to speak about them in a uh A somewhat profound way. So I think uh, mentorship, like looking for people that give you, that that open up and give you some space, give you the opportunities to grow as a person who wants to do stuff in here. And there's a lot of young people that want to. And uh, I know there's like, being a student at Columbia, I know for a fact, like there's so many young people that are just generally worried about their future in this world. And they, they feel an itch to do something, but they don't really know where to start. But there's actually like so many people out there that are also like so many people at the UN that are, are UN and, and like Aspen was a big one. Like we got a chance to meet like some incredible people at Aspen Ideas and, and Future Leaders Climate Summit. And that was because Aspen, like Aspen Institute made a space for us to be there. And so I think I'm very, very grateful for that like the fact that there are people that recognize that young people want to do something in this space, that uh, people want to use their skills, people want to grow in their skills to contribute to this. And I want to make that more accessible. And I think like, that that's like a big thing that I want to do more of. Like I, I talked a lot about like, working with local communities and organizations, understanding their specific needs. But my community, one of my communities, at least like being Bangladeshi, being a young person, being a student, I think I also want to get more of the young population more involved in a more meaningful way because protests are great i think uh, you know friday's future they're doing some really really incredible work they built the amount of awareness around climate the amount of awareness they built around climate change is is remarkable but i think there's a lot more people who come from different walks of life that are not necessarily like activists per se but there are people who are engineers who are policy advocates who are uh, interested in doing work around uh, data science like my like myself there's a space in the climate space for almost anybody from any background. And I think like anybody who has an interest in anything can get involved in climate. And I think that's, that's like a a big takeaway that I want to give to a lot of young people. It's like, you don't have to change. You don't have to go take environmental science in in college, you don't have to major in that. If you want to do something for the climate, you can do, you can do what you love and still make a positive impact.
0: Thanks again to Cheyenne for both your work and for your wonderful perspectives and for sharing them. You can learn more about the Center for International Development's research, upcoming events, and how to join the GEM23 virtually at cid.harvard.edu. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back soon.